<laughs> All right. Um, one of the uh, one of the struggles of uh, being a Judeo Christian congregation is that uh, we have the Jewish calendar, we have the Christian calendar, we have the American calendar of holy days and holidays. And uh, if we do the Eastern and Western Church, that's another one, and it gets a little uh, busy. We seem to have a uh, holy day every time you turn around. Um, So right in the middle of a series on discipleship, uh, we're about to enter at the end of this week, the end of next Sabbath, uh, that evening at sundown begins the next month. And that month is the month of Elul, which is really foundational to moving towards the High Holy Days. So today I'm going to talk about that so that we can be prepared uh, and we can have some discussion afterwards about home issues. And then next week I'll go back to the uh, uh, making disciples and the uh, one on prayer. Um, In the midst of uh, being traveling, I uh, pulled up my schedule, had this all ready to go, and uh, somehow... I deleted the file. So last night when I got back from uh, uh, traveling for the last two weeks, I tried to pull it back together and we'll see, how, we'll see how that goes. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read uh, a passage uh, to kind of get us in the framework for this. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, Uh, Now remember, this is being written to Jewish believers in the early communities. Um, So its focus is not on Gentiles. Its focus is on Jewish believers. And its focus is on an understanding of Yeshua in the context of his high priest ministry. Jesus as the great high priest. And so the writer says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place... By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another, the King James says provoke uh, one another, to love and good deeds. Not provoke one another to anger and frustration, but to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that text uh, has a very Jewish context to it. It is talking about uh, the hope that God gave first to Abraham and beyond through the covenants with the Jewish people that ultimately the kingdom would be established. He would take away the sin of Jacob and he would establish Israel as the head among the nations and the world will be at peace and the kingdom would establish The Messiah who would rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And what he's saying is that the ministry of Jesus in this first coming 
was one to address that atonement, the removal of the sin of Jacob, so that they could receive a new heart, so that they could receive the good news, and so that they could enter into the ultimate kingdom which had been promised to them uh, all along. And that they needed to not grow weary in doing well. They needed to encourage one another all the more as they see the day approaching. Now, what day is approaching? What day is drawing near? That day that is drawing near is the ultimate fulfillment of what we call the high holy days. The kingdom being established on the earth and salvation and resurrection and all the promises of God being brought to fullness. So that this creation comes back into what God fully intended in his redemption. And then and only then will God remove this earth and create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. In other words, he is going to tikkun olam. He's going to fix this one, bring it to its fullness. And then he has another promise that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't entered into the heart of man the things which God is preparing in the new creation. Now with that in mind, uh, we engage as a, as a congregation in the religious calendars and the holy days. And they are not for spiritual brownie points. God is not looking to see if we observe the commandments so he can say, okay, you did well and I needed that. Okay? Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that is a major focus of the Holy Days. That means that the Holy Days were made for man and not man for the Holy Days. The doing of them is not about doing them or you'll be in trouble. They're about doing them so that you will experience God, an epiphany of God, and you will understand Him better because God's Word gives us commandments and narratives that as we read the narratives and we do the commandments, we understand who He is and what He's doing. And so the holy days in that sense are observances that remember and reinforce the history and the hope of God's purpose. And they're focused primarily on God's dealing with mankind through Israel, but ultimately God's holy days in both Judaism and Christianity, as days have been added, bring again a manifestation of God's faithfulness uh, in, uh, in, in His purpose. Holidays, kind of a contraction of holy day, is really the cultural and secular Days being set aside like July 4th and New Year's for the purpose of reinforcing meaning within the culture. Now, because of the historic influence of Judaism and Christianity on Western culture in Europe and the founding of the United States, most of our holy days and holidays have both religious and secular overlap meanings. And it creates confusions for a lot of people as to what celebrations and traditions associated with the holy days, what they mean and to what they should be do, what, which of them should be done. And this result is the, uh, this connection and blurring is the result of something that anthropologists call syncretism. Syncretism is the borrowing and connecting of distinct religious and cultural traditions into a collage, 
collage, if you will, of traditions that have mutual and in some cases exclusive meanings and allow people from different groups to engage in the traditions and ceremonies of their own identity. In our case, uh, identity as Judeo-Christian believers identified with Israel, not as Israel, uh, but from the nations that we come from. Now, there are two kinds of syncretism that take place. Uh, I have called them adaptive and transformative. Those are not generally accepted terms. I'm just using them so that we can talk about them. <clears throat> One adaptive syncretism is the type of syncretism that maintains identity and maintains meaning by adapting in an environment where that meaning may need to be expressed slightly different. I'll give you an example. In the upcoming High Holy Days, the traditional observance of the, the high priest cannot be done. One, there is no high priest in Judaism. There is no temple in Judaism, and therefore, the commandments can't be done the way they are commanded. So, you could take the view, then we just won't do them. But if they are not done at all, they won't be remembered. And so, what Judaism did, is it engaged in adaptive syncretism, where it uh, addressed this by using their diaspora experience outside of the destruction of the first temple to begin to use some of the prayers and some of the notions related to the ceremony that would be done at, say, Yom Kippur. And they did that uh, in an adaptive way. Less adaptive is Sukkot, where the building of the tabernacle, uh, the, the sukkahs, the uh, booths, can be done in a diaspora context. So where it can be done more literally correct, it is done, and where it can't be, to keep it remembered, it is adapted to the context of the environment that uh, the group is doing. And Judaism has done this well in their, in their um, diaspora experience. The other kind of syncretism is what I call transformative syncretism. It involves the borrowing or the imposing of tradition that is problematic and in conflict with the true meaning and function of the religious tradition. So the borrowed or imposed tradition begins to transform the meaning so that it is now not consistent with the identity and meaning of the original group, but of uh, the outside influence. Now, let me give you an example of that. That is the building of the golden calf, which is a pagan uh, Egyptian model, and then identifying it with the God who delivered Israel. And we begin to see in the Older Testament a lot of examples <coughs> where the things of the cultures around them are borrowed or imposed upon Israel. And though that kind of syncretism should be rejected. Now, not knowing the difference between adaptive syncretism and maladaptive, maybe that's a better term for me to use, maladaptive syncretism, the one that transforms it into something that it isn't, we begin to get people who are purists and start arguing for only literal uh, observance, which in many cases can't be done, or they become overly creative 
uh, in what it means for me as everyone does what's right in their own eyes as in the book of Judges. So, this process is a problem for Judaism and Christianity in America with regard to the holy days in the winter, Hanukkah, Christmas, Advent, and all of those as the secular and the two religious forms get somewhat blurred and often the secular takes over. Same thing happens in the uh, um, uh, spring holy days where uh, Passover and, uh, and Easter have both secular and religious blurrings of the views. So, what we're about to enter into are the High Holy Days. And the High Holy Days have less intensity in terms of the struggle, in some sense, because there's not any secular uh, co-opting to do. And the Christian tradition has, for the most part, taken what it needed from the Fall Holy Days and move them into the religious calendar, tying them to the life and ministry of Jesus <coughs> as he fulfills, uh, in part or in whole, those, those aspects. So, for example, the Day of Atonement, which is about the sacrifice for sins is clearly understood in the Christian community as tied to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And we can see that high priest activity going on there. So why are we doing it in the fall? So for Christianity, an enormous amount of this was just moved into the other ways, I think appropriately adapted. But they didn't take everything because not everything could be brought over because, and this becomes almost Christian heresy, Jesus didn't fulfill everything when he came. Now that's not surprising to you guys, but to those who are listening to this tape, they'll be tearing their clothes and pulling out their hair. Jesus did not, with his death, burial, and resurrection, fulfill all the promises of the scriptures. And I would not have known that if it hadn't been for a Baptist church that I was pastoring trying to understand the Day of Atonement and we thought we'd go ahead and celebrate it on the Day of Atonement and we created what became our high priest service by building the tabernacle furniture and kind of liturgically going through it. And we wrote the liturgy to get us up to the point where Jesus enters into heaven and he does something that no high priest ever did, ever, in all of Jewish history. Every high priest entered into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, put the blood on the mercy seat, and then came out of the Holy of Holies and applied blood to the furniture of the temple or tabernacle, and then went outside and did the, the second goat, 
which was then released into the wilderness. And Jesus did none of that. Now, I know Christian theology tries to make him do it all, but it doesn't fit. He did something no one else ever did. When he put the blood, his own blood, on the mercy seat, according to the book of Hebrews, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. No priest sat down in the Holy of Holies. And in sitting down, that meant he hasn't come back to do the rest of the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is not yet fully fulfilled by Jesus. He will do it, but that's what the Second Coming is all about. And that's the part of the High Holy Days that got removed and placed into Advent. So that Advent celebrates the first and the second coming. And in doing so, we created in the Christian world a replacement theology that now sees Jesus in heaven ruling from heaven on his Father's throne. That is not the fulfillment of the command of, of the promises. The promises is that Jesus, you can read it in the Gospels, We read it every year at Christmas. He will sit on the throne of his father, who? David. David's throne is in heaven? No, the father's throne is in heaven. He sits with his father in his father's throne in heaven. He will sit on his father's throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David. And he will rule Israel. The twelve apostles will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Israel will be the head and not the tail of the nations. All of that has never happened and has to be fulfilled or the scriptures are broken. So it's important that we reestablish a Christian form, a Judeo-Christian form, of the observance of the High Holy Days. Now, this is problematic because there's not much to draw on. We have the adaptive form that Judaism has done. But you know my view is that Christian observance, Judeo-Christian observance, should be substantially the same meaning, but... In appearance, it should be significantly different enough to make a distinction. My precedent for that is found in many passages related to uh, males and females, but let me talk about the Corinthian ones. The Bible says when a woman, means wife there, uh, is praying or prophesying, she should have her head covered. Now, what is she doing? She is praying... Or she is speaking the word of God. Now when a man prays and speaks the word of God, Paul says his head should be uncovered. They are doing the exact same thing. But their distinction of being male and female must be maintained, Paul says, for the angel's sake. In that marriage, the husband and wife are one, but they are not the same. In the body of Messiah, Jew and Gentile are one, but we are not the same. We have distinct roles, and when we are doing the same thing, 
we should keep the roles distinct so that that understanding of unity and not uniformity is taking place. So we observe Shabbat a little bit different. It overlaps, but a little bit different than Judaism does. We observe the Passover Seder tied more to the Last Supper than to the original Seder, but we draw in aspects of it. We leave other aspects that are unique to Jewish identity out of it. So I thought the same thing for the, for the, uh, the fall holy days. But it's very difficult to find Christian traditions because they're all tied up to the other, the other holidays that were left out. But what we could do, I decided we would, we would try to do. So, what are these, what are the holy days uh, that we're about to enter into? And how do we as the Disciple Center currently observe them? This is a work in progress. It's a work in progress in the congregation. I've been doing that for probably 25 years now, and I'm just about, I'm confused at a higher level of consciousness about what the questions are. I don't have it worked out. Uh, so so uh, I see that, as, as I've said before, that you guys are a lab for this. By the way, I'm beginning to, to get a lot of requests from people who want to know what we're doing so that they can do it, now, that's been Gentiles who have been interested in the Messianic movement, which keeps them from interfering with the movement. But recently, I'm getting contacted by Messianic rabbis who want to know, what do we do in the life cycle and the holy days for our Gentiles who are in our congregation? How do we maintain that distinction without them feeling like second-class citizens? So we're going to be able to not only influence our children, but we're going to be able to influence others, I think, in the next few years with, with this process. So uh, the impact of what you're doing as you share it back with me and with each other is going to spread beyond just this congregation in that sense. So we begin with uh, this cluster of holy days. Uh, the Strictly speaking, the high holy days are only the ten days from Yom Terah or Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. But when we talk about the fall holy days, just like if we said Passover, we include Lent all the way up through uh, Holy Week. And when we talk about <coughs> the Feast of Shavuot, goes from first fruits all the way up to Pentecost in that context. So we're going to take everything from the beginning of the month of Elul through uh, uh, Simchat Torah, in, in that sense. So I'll explain those to you. Because this is the one that you probably have the most trouble remembering because it doesn't parallel so much what's been done in Christianity. So we begin with the month of Elul. We are in the last week of the month of Av. And the month of Av includes into it the ninth of Av, which is a fast period and it is the day which commemorates the destruction of the temples and the reading of lamentations. And it is really an understanding that, that Israel has struggled not only by her own sins, but by the oppression of others all throughout history. And so that should have special meaning to, to we Judeo-Christians in that uh, the giving of the atonement and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost doesn't make everything rosy. The kingdom's not here yet. 
We have this Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit, the promises, but we're going to live through dark times. We're going to live through times of persecution. We're going to live through problems. And those that period in Av reminds us of that. But the focus of attention changes at the end of this week. When we enter into the month of Elul. The month of Elul precedes the High Holy Days, which begin the month of Tishri. So there's an entire month leading up to that. And what happens in that context is it is a beginning of Jewish attention being focused on the Day of Atonement. Now, in some sense, the Rosh Hashanah and the sounding of the Shofar is that, but Israel realized they needed more. And so they backed up those 10 days. They added another month of 30 days. Okay, 10 days and 30 days, which is 40 days. And literally, that period of Elul is what you and I understand in the preparation of Lent for Holy Week. A 40-day period. 40 is a biblical note. The idea of wandering in the wilderness. All of the 40-day the temptation of our Lord. Those things become significant. So Elul is a month when Israel begins to prepare itself for the High Holy Days and moving towards the Day of Atonement. It's, in a sense, a Jewish form of Lent. The difference is, it is not uh, uh, focused on the spiritual disciplines. The, the, the Lent focus of Christianity is on praying, fasting, and giving alms as a discipline. For Israel, the focus is on fasting and praying and repentance, and giving alms in terms of getting back on track with God and with each other. In other words, it's much more communal than Lent. You can do Lent by yourself. You can't do the month of Elul by yourself because it's about cleaning up relationships. And so the month of Elul is uh, where we are encouraged to uh, return to an appropriate faith to obedience and community with an emphasis on tzedakah uh, and good deeds. Provoke one another unto love and good deeds. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Because on the day of atonement in Jewish tradition, God determines who will live and who will die in the next year. Now ultimately, God will determine who lives and dies in eternity. And that's really what atonement is. But in the annual notion... That is part of the process. So, uh, the Disciple Center encourages the use of a spiritual report card or a discipleship evaluation to examine our own walk with God. At Lent, we do it in the terms of self-limitation, the, the season of the cross. But at this time, we really do encourage you to look at your spiritual maturity and your focus and your relationships and your stewardships in anticipation of the ultimate judgment of God, wherein we want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay? So, 
this is an important time to do this, not only in our homes, but with our children. The forms are outside. I'll be putting them on Facebook this week so that you can begin to do that. Some people do it as a journal. Some people just do it by a checkoff thing. I, I don't care where you are in the process. We can talk about this in the Q&A. But some form of self-reflection and spiritual assessment should be done at this time of year. Now that leads us up to the actual High Holy Day of Yom Terah, which is more commonly known as Rosh Hashanah. And there is a reason for that. It's part of the syncretism notion that we talked about. On the first day of Tishri is the day of blowing, Yom Terah, day of trumpets, if you will. And it begins the formal High Holy Days, found in Leviticus 23, verses 24 and 25. It is a Sabbath, regardless of the day of the week it is. Uh, this year, it will be on uh, uh, Sunday. It, the eve will happen on Sunday. Monday will be the, be the day. And uh, the, it is the sounding of the shofars. Now, you guys are very familiar with this because we do it every year. The rabbis hold that it is a requirement to hear the shofar. So you don't have to do all the prayers. You don't have to do all the readings. Those are there. But you must hear the sound of the shofar. That is the requirement. Because that's what the biblical foundation is. Um, now. There are three sounds of the shofar. The first one. Is to call God's people back to repentance. And dedication to him. The second one. That staccato. Ten, that is. Uh, to remember the great deeds of God, to recount them, and to remember that God is great in what He does, and He's faithful in what He does, and by remembering all the things He's done, He will keep His word as we go into some, some dark times. Uh, the third one is called the sound of the shofar, or sometimes called the joyful sound, as it is in the Psalms, and it's associated with the raising of the dead. So Messianic Jews and many Christians consider this to be what the New Testament calls the last trump, which signals the return of our Lord and the resurrection. So Yom Terah should be a celebration in every church. I don't understand why churches don't celebrate this as the celebration of the return of the Lord. We've got the death, burial, and crucifixion. Forty days, He ascends, He's there, the Holy Spirit comes. You would think this would be a natural, that the sound of the shofar and the Lord will return and, and we can celebrate it. But it seems to not be uh, known in the Christian world. And I'm hoping that uh, we and others like us can, can uh, address that. Now, this day, Yom Terah, is also called Rosh Hashanah. Now remember, Rosh means head. Rosh Kodesh is head of the month, new, new moon. And Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, a new year. Wait a minute. Leviticus says that the new year is Nisan, where Passover is, and that Yom Kippur is in the seventh month. So why is it called the head of the month? Well, two things. One, in the Babylonian captivity... The civil year tied into this month. People go, oh, oh, bad syncretism. It's not bad syncretism. Because in the Bible, there is another beginning that is related to the kingdom and the end times. And that is the year of Jubilee. 
the year of Jubilee is not sounded at the first year of the religious month in Nisan. The year of Jubilee is sounded at uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In other words, that will be the beginning of the kingdom. So the year of Jubilee is, if you will, the head of the year for the kingdom to come. And for Israel, it's become the civil uh, new year. So people say, Happy New Year uh, around this time. Uh, those are, that's not a bad syncretism. It's actually a helpful one if you understand the year of Jubilee. So, uh, again, this is lost in most of Christianity because of replacement theology, which doesn't allow a future kingdom for Israel. And I think that is problematic. Now, what do we do? Well, we observe this with a service on the eve of Yom Terah, uh, with the sounding of the shofars, each of the distinct mission uh, meanings. And in recent years, we've really focused, and you know this, on the children with the little toy uh, shofars and the noisemakers and that kind of thing. I think it's time for us to step this up. I'm hoping that families who have older kids, third, fourth, fifth grade and older, will look into buying an actual shofar and work on them learning to do the, the sounds. And I'm sure Mike will help them with that process. But I would really like to begin to see the younger kids with the toy ones and the older kids beginning to sound them so that when this happens, it goes from that kind of kid sound to a more mature sound and a focus on that, on that process. Uh, now, in recent times, as I've gone to Messianic conferences in the summer, uh, there just aren't any available, because I was going to go to the marketplace and, and grab a bunch of them, but the marketplaces are now mostly about tours to Israel and uh, wall hangings and stuff like that, and I didn't see any shofars there. So uh, we're, we're going to have to order them uh, uh, or go into the Jewish community and get them there in that context. But I really think that's something we need to do. Now, during the time between Yom Terah or Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, this is a time when Jews will, in their repentance, there is some fasting that goes on. Uh, this is a time when many of them will visit the graves of family members and loved ones. Because remember, we're focusing in some sense on the resurrection of the dead. And this is also a focus on understanding self-evaluation because this is the time when God is making temporal judgments, ultimately eternal judgments. And so what we do in the Disciples Center is we will have the books. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about the books that were written of the works of people. And then there's another book, which is the book of life. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace. But there will be a reward for obey, obedience to the Lord and stewardship. That's why he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. So, we need to focus more on that. Most Christians just have this kind of ollie ollie oxen free the Lord will come back. We're all going to get equal treatment in the kingdom. It's going to be like this communist thing where everybody has the same size dwelling and everybody has the same stuff. The scripture teaches none of that. Scripture is pretty clear that there are differences of reward in the kingdom as there are differences of punishment in eternity. 
Uh, and so it's really important that we be, become aware of that. And so reflecting on our stewardship is an important part of this. So during this time, uh, we need to focus on the stewardship of our life because that's paramount in, in this term. Now, I've got to move quick here. I'm running out of time. Uh, Yom Kippur, the 10th day of the month, the Day of Atonement. Uh, this ritual took place at the tabernacle or the temple uh, and was not attended by the people. They were called to come up at Sukkot. So this is done for them, not by them. That makes perfect sense with atonement. And our great high priest made the atonement for us. And we can't add to it or take away from it because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So in that sense, the, uh, the high priest is the one who does that. Now what do we do to observe it in the synagogues? They have uh, prayers and, and, and uh, fasting for that 24 hours. Uh, we do the same thing. Uh, uh, the book of Leviticus um, gives the, the temple ritual. Um, and the Christian rituals don't exist. And so what we did is we created our high priest service where we understand what the high priest did on the eve. Then during Yom Kippur, uh, many of us do the full fast and uh, we come here and do the prayers if, if you can attend. And uh, in that context, we uh, uh, then gather to break the fast at the end of Yom Kippur, realizing that this is... What Jesus is talking about when he says, if you, must fo- if you will follow me, you must deny yourself, humble yourself, that's the fasting, take up your cross and follow me. Now the true fast from Isaiah is not about abstaining from food, it's about denying yourself the things of this life so that you can do for others. That really is the essence of the Christian life. Now, <clears throat> Tabernacles then begins on the 15th day. This is Sukkot, this is a period where Jews are required to live in booths as a reminder of their time in the wilderness. Uh, And in the future, God will dwell with them again. Now, many in the Messianic community believe that this is the time of Jesus' birth. That he was born on the first day of Sukkot, and he was circumcised on the eighth day of Sukkot. I'm not convinced of that, but I get the idea. Actually, what that would mean is that the conception would have taken place about the time that we celebrate Christmas. So either way, whether you celebrate the birth or the incarnation, in that context, we're beginning to see adaptive uh, syncretism in that kind of context. Um, So, we, of course, put a sukkah here. We're not required to do that, but we have people who uh, do some of that in in their own homes. Now, the final things of the, uh, the holy days of this time, uh, we have added a new creation ceremony. We do our kingdom ceremony during Sukkot. Then we do a new creation one to kind of close that out. Uh, and then we come to the end of that as we do Simchat Torah. This is when the scroll is rolled back in the synagogues. And what we do is we take all of the items out of the ark We read the scriptures about what they they mean and then place them back in the ark. And that is our way of acknowledging the uh, re-establishment of the readings for the Jewish uh, year. Then, 
The Christian year begins with the first Sunday of Advent. The final holy day before Advent is the day, uh, uh, All Saints Day. And so it is there that we acknowledge and remember those who died for the faith, martyrs, and those who died in the faith, many of our loved ones, as we await the resurrection. And then, of course, with Advent, the Christian year begins again. And so, uh, again, they don't completely overlap, but they're connected. So, why do we celebrate? We celebrate to reinforce the meaning. And so, it's important that these celebrations also take place, to some extent, in our homes. And so I'm hoping that we will work a little more to get the fall holy days in the homes. It's going to require some creativity because Christianity ignores it. And we don't simply want to duplicate what's done in Judaism. We want to adapt what's done in Judaism with the Christian understandings and what's appropriate in our own, in our own context. So I hope that uh, this year uh, you will write those holy days down on your calendar Because what happens is they will show up and you'll go, oh, missed it again, right? And so I thought I'd mention it again. We have a whole month to get ready and to think about these things and to talk about these things and to come up with plans. So uh, I'm hoping that it will be more meaningful to us and our children in that context. So let's pray. Father, we thank you.